All right, Roy Jr., y'all can go ahead and go out the back, go downstairs. Go ahead and open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 6. So if you remember, we're, we're still in this conversation where Paul has, or, <laughs> and by Paul, of course, I mean Apollos, <laughs> where the writer of Hebrews uh, has really rebuked the audience, the church, for their lack of maturity, right, that he said, hey, you know, you ought to be teaching these things about Jesus and his great high priesthood and in the order of Melchizedek, you should be teaching this, but you're, you're like a baby. You need, you need milk instead of meat because meat is for the mature. But then if you remember, we looked at what maturity is here. The maturity is, yeah, having your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. He's saying, yeah, maturity isn't ultimately just having a greater depth of knowledge. That's part of it. It's ultimately taking the truth that we know that's revealed from God, by God, to us in his word and applying that to our life to be able to distinguish between good and evil, to how, how we handle trials and temptations and relationships. That's maturity. Maturity is a, a simpler way to say it, is living out the Christian life. It's just is, is following Jesus' Jesus's example in our circumstances. And so he's been calling them out for that, and, and it extends into what we're about to get into, this, this next warning. And if you remember when we talked about, man, the warnings in the letter of Hebrews, we said that the harsher the warning followed right on that, the harsher the warning, man, the sweeter the promise or the blessing or the encouragement that follows it, because that, that is the, the purpose of this letter for the writer of Hebrews from this like pastoral heart is that every believer would persevere faithfully in the gospel, that we would hold fast to Christ, that we would live our lives for his glory, that we wouldn't fall away, that we wouldn't drift, that we wouldn't be deceived by sin. And that's his heart. And so he even tells us in this passage, and I know like this passage has a certain reputation, right? That, that Hebrews 6 is, is one of those places in the Bible that often comes up in when, when somebody wants to see your position on something or they want to maybe argue or spar about a passage of Scripture because there's so many opinions on what this passage means. If you're not familiar, it's, it's, it's a passage that on, on one side, if you believe that a Christian can lose their salvation, this would be a passage that you would go to to try to prove that. Or on the other side, if you believe, no, 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 a, a Christian can't lose their salvation, but there can be people in the church that appear to be Christians, and then they fall away, and that's what a apostasy is, and then you would go to this passage to, to try to prove that, and so there's a tug of war on who gets, who, who has the rights to Romans chapter 6, and, and so an unintended consequence of that is often young believers or maybe believers who are sensitive and maybe believers who are in a tough spot who have truly like drifted to a degree, they've what some people call backslidden and they're worried that, okay, have I sinned too much? People will jump right into chapter six and read it 
The danger is that you don't get the full context of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, and, and believers have jumped into this passage and, and really caused uh, turmoil to their own soul because they, they might walk away thinking, man, this is talking about me. I've sinned too much. I, I, I've committed, I've fallen away, like, and it's impossible for me to ever like, get back into good graces with God. Or, or you may just ask questions, like just theologically want to understand, like, okay, what does the Bible talk about this? And in, in such a way that you would just be kind of callous to the teaching here because you walk away and go, you know what? Now that's talking about people who are never saved, so it really doesn't have anything to do with me. Like, I'm good, I'm taken care of, this is for somebody else. And we don't want to fall into either one of those ditches. We don't want to approach this passage in a callous way that just dismisses its teaching. And we also don't want to come at it man, insecure of our relationship with the Lord and, and, and be disrupted in that way. And that's why when we started this study, and I mean really throughout the history of our church, we put such an emphasis on, man, and Bertie talked about this last week, every believer is a theologian. We're all called to be students of the word of God. There's been times where we've challenged you that, you know, you should, you should come to church just as prepared for church as the pastor in, in two different ways. In one way, having studied the word, like if you're visiting with us, we, we just go through books of the Bible primarily, and so we, we know where we're going to be the next Sunday, and so we, we try to, and to some degree, all study through these books of the Bible together. So you should have come in like having read and meditated and prepared to hear from the Lord, like prepared your heart to receive the word of God with meekness, but also come just as prepared to minister. We're all theologians and we're all ministers of the gospel. In fact, in this letter, we'll see that man, we need to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, that that's why we meet together, not just to hear a sermon, but we meet together so we can encourage one another. And so we come to this passage, and I, I, hopefully you've taken that admonition where you just haven't jumped in to really one of the scariest warnings of the Bible without first looking at, okay, what's the context leading up to this? Uh, one of the commentaries that, that I use, I forget which one, but he, you open up to chapter six, I remember the first time I opened up to chapter six and I did exactly what I was telling y'all not to do. And so I wanted to see what this commentator said about chapter six and I, I flipped there and he said, if you are turning here without reading what I said about the first five chapters, go back to the beginning. He was like, no, stop, back to the beginning, square one. And I, so hopefully you've done that where I mean, we're not just jumping into the deep end here, but we've, we've been swimming through like the first five chapters and getting into the flow of what he's presenting about Christ, and we've already seen some of these warnings, and so we're prepared, and what we should anticipate is, yeah, I wanna come under the warning, I wanna feel the pressure, I wanna experience that tension, because I now know, like, on the other side of this is just gonna be encouragement. I'm gonna walk away from this warning in Hebrews chapter six, more convinced of my security in my relationship with Christ than before I read it, than before we studied it. And so I asked Zach to read that passage in Romans chapter eight, because if, again, if you're visiting with us, I mean, that's what we believe. We believe 
that when somebody is truly born again, when, they, when they're saved, when they start following Christ, that, that they can't truly ever fall away, that, they, that Jesus won't lose them, that we're in Christ's hand, and his hand is in the Father's hand, and no one's greater than God. No one can pluck us out of the hand of God's grace. It's impossible. But this passage means something for us, so we, we are going to walk through it and say, okay, what, what does this mean for us? And he tells us, he tells us the main point of the passage. Um, so we're going to, like any good sermon, we're going to start at the end. So look down at uh, verses 11 and 12. Because he tells us, he tells us why he is warning us. He tells us why he's giving us his teaching in 11 and 12. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have, listen to this, to have the full, <laughs> it's so good, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish or lazy or dull of hearing, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That's pretty rock solid. The full assurance of hope to the end. He could not be more clear. Like, my purpose is that you would have rock solid assurance that you belong to Jesus. What, what is biblical hope? Confident expectation. Hope of what? Eternal life. That he has saved us to the uttermost. That we belong to him forever. That's our hope. And he's saying, yeah, I want you to have that so that you won't be lazy in your Christian life, but that you'll live out the Christian life. That you'll pursue a deeper knowledge of Jesus. That you'll pursue making him known. That you'll be a faithful witness. That you'll be about encouraging other believers in their race. And so many, that's the purpose, that's the point of this. That we inherit the promise. So, let's now go back to the beginning. I'll just say this, that's, that's our heart. As your pastors, like, that is our desire for you. And, and there's sometimes where, you know, he talks to the church and it's like the church at large, but he says, man, each one of you. And that's our heart, that, that, that's our desire. That's why, that's why we do this. Our desire from God for you is that each one of us would persevere faithfully to the end. All of us. From the oldest believers among us, for, for John and Spicy, that you would finish faithful. That wasn't meant to be disrespectful. Sam and Vicky. Ed and Connie, Sean and Bethany, that all. <laughs> From the oldest believers among us that, that we can look at them and they've been following Jesus for decades, that we can look to their example to the youngest, the, the, the babies that are in the womb right now in this room, our desire, <laughs> our earnest I'm not going to do it. I, I was preaching to teenagers this weekend. Listen, y'all won't even believe me. I, I was preaching Sunday morning to a group of teenagers, and I went the whole sermon without getting choked up until the last word of the prayer. 
and I, I lost it. I, I was this close. I was so close. I've never done it. Maybe next time. <laughs> it's our earnest desire that we would all finish. I mean, what, what a testimony. It's why we're heartbroken when people walk away, when they're unresponsive. When you meet with them and you say, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't make this decision. Why? Because you say that you belong to Jesus and we don't do that. It's our desire is that we finish faithful. And we need the encouragement of Scripture and we need the warnings of Scripture. So, verse 1, chapter 6. While you're looking there, I'll sip some water. Don't know why I told you that. Don't know why I'm still telling you my thoughts. Here we go. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he's saying... All right, these are the elementary principles of Scripture. And whether he's talking about, um, you know, like the Jewish roots, like that these could potentially be things like in, for Jews that they believed in part of their doctrine, or whether he's just talking about like, this is like an early Christian catechism, like things that they believed in and held to, which I, I lean more in that direction. But either way, the, the main point is, because even if it is the Old Testament teaching, okay, we know that those, everything in the Old Testament, it was a shadow of the, the reality that comes with Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to truths in the New Testament regardless. He's saying, okay, it's time to go on from those things. Not go on where, like, we leave them behind and don't use them. Brody did such an awesome job when he's talking about, like, how, in the same way that we go on from reciting the ABCs. You're not done with the alphabet, just your application of the alphabet matures. The way that you string together sentences and paragraphs and ideas and thoughts and convey them like the, the, the same ABCs that you used to sing in grade school, you know, now you can, you can sing songs of worship to the Lord that are conveying thoughts and feelings that are deep and meaningful, like that, that we go on from these basic principles in that way. We just understand them more. We're better at applying it to our life. We go on in that way. He says, repentance from dead works. And what we'll see is that repentance is essential to true saving faith, a, a real relationship with the Lord. He says, faith towards God. This is a major concern for the writer of Hebrews. Major concern, and it should be for all of us. Faith toward God. The question is, what type of faith? We already saw back in chapter 3, if you remember, the Israelites, there was a group of Jews who had a type of faith. They left Egypt, they left slavery, they ate the manna, but they had a type of faith that didn't persevere, and they weren't able to enter into the promised land. So he's always, he's, whenever he brings up faith, we need to ask that question, okay, what, what type of faith? Instructions about washings. This could be talking about Jewish purification rites or the idea of Christian baptism and the, the cleansing work of the Spirit. Either way, both ultimately, whether 
Christian baptism or Jewish purification rites, both ultimately represent the internal spiritual cleansing of our sin by the work of Christ as applied by the Holy Spirit. This is the laying on of hands, which in the early church they would do as a, as to symbolically represent when the Holy Spirit would come into a new believer. Also when in the Old Testament and the new, the laying on of hands to ordain somebody. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, both the warning and the hope. Right? He, he says this in chapter 9, 27 through 28. And just as, is it, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And he says, and this we will do, this going on to maturity. Remember, he wants to talk about Melchizedek. We all want to talk about Melchizedek. Right? That's where we're going, to maturity. He says, and this we will do if God permits. I love that he says that. I picture him saying that with a smile. Like, it's not like that, you know, well, if the Lord wills, if God permits, no, I think it's if God permits. Optimistically, why? Because he knows God's grace. He knows that he who began a good work in you will do what? complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Saying, if God permits, is saying, I expect this to happen. My faith and trust is in this will ha- that this will happen. That he will bring the maturity. This, is, to me, is so hopeful. We've been looking at these pictures. I mean, okay, is it, am I in danger of drifting away? Yeah, at times. Am I in danger of being deceived by sin and having a hard heart? Yeah, but my, my hope is that, no, no, I mean, God's will for me is sanctification. That God's will, that, that what his desire is, is that we will grow and mature in the Christian life. His, his will is that we would persevere to the end. So this, is, to me, is hopeful. It's hopeful. Especially when you know someone, when you love someone, when you care about someone, who is drifting, who is hard, who you know is living in sin and and right now they're unresponsive. This phrase gives me hope because for a person like that, now y'all listen to me, for a person like that, our hope is not that they will get it figured out. Our hope is not that that they'll wake up, straighten up, get their act together, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Our hope is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more powerful than their sin. Our hope is that God's grace is greater than their disobedience. Our hope is that if God permits, they'll go on to maturity, that this isn't the end for them. Our hope isn't in somebody's own ability to make themselves right with God. It's in Christ's ability to make them right with God, keep them, and hold them. I thought that was good. Amen. I'm sorry I called you old. I didn't mean old. I just meant like mature. 
That's the whole point. And that they would see the supremacy of Jesus. They would see that Jesus is better. And that's what would open their eyes. And that's what would bring them back. He says, we'll go on. And he says, we've got to go on. There's no other option. There's no other option. And he lets us know that, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. All right, so what we're going to see is he's going to say, because something's impossible for a group of people who ultimately fall away, okay? And, and he's going to give us a description of these people. So pay attention. What you should be thinking right now is what's impossible and who's he talking about? Who does this description fit? For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. Pause. So he's saying it's impossible then he says, in the case of those, and describes them, but what he's saying is impossible is to restore this group of people to repentance. That's why this is the scariest, or at least in competition, for the scariest warning in the Bible. Because he'll say at other times in this letter, it's impossible for God to lie. Not a lot of wiggle room there with the word impossible. <laughs> it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Pretty clear. So he's saying something for this group of people is impossible. Namely, for a group of people who apparently at one time made a public declaration of their faith in Jesus with repentance, in repentance, if they fall away, for them to be restored. That's what's impossible. So then our next question should be, okay, then who are these people? And already in the text, this is what's key, and this is why it's so important to study Scripture the way that God wrote Scripture. This isn't, it's, I'm telling myself, that's not rocket science. It, it, we don't have to make this harder than it needs to be, but sometimes we make it hard to understand the Bible just by the way we handle it. When you jump into a passage and ignore its context. But if we see it in this text, in its context, I think it, I mean, we, we can get this. And, and the point of it then can be applied to us and we can be encouraged and built up. Because all along he's, he'll say things like, in addressing the audience, he'll say, brothers, when he warned us before, he said, make sure there isn't, isn't in any of you an evil heart of unbelief causing you to fall away. But here he says, do you, see, do you see what he says? How does he address the people he's talking about? He says, in the case of those. We still need to pay attention. Is it possible that in this room right now, or somebody listening, like that 
the warning is for them in their specific situation? Absolutely. As a church, we need to take this serious. We need to come underneath the warning, but right away he's telling us, I don't think this is true about you. He's going to get there at the end. At the end of our passage, he's going to say, Man, we, we, we believe better things. It's in the case of those, but here's where it does get, and it can be confusing. Who does this sound like? Let's, let, let's look at what does he say? Who've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, and tasted the powers of the age to come. What type of person does that sound like? Don't be scared. It sounds like a Christian, doesn't it? Yeah. And then people do some funny things with this passage to try to make it not a Christian, depending on their theological perspective entering into it, which typically means like more people on our team, people who believe that a true believer can't fall away. When they get to this passage, they feel that tension and they try to ease it by making these words mean something other than what they mean because they don't want this to be a description of a believer. But he says, once been enlightened. Well, in chapter 10, he uses that same word again, and it's very clear he's talking to believers. He says this in 10, 32 through 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. These are believers who have been persecuted for their faith and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one what heaven eternal life so what does enlightened mean here he's talking about a believer he says you have tasted the heavenly gift some folks here will say uh, people I like, people I respect, people who are way smarter than me, and if they walked in the room, I would yield the pulpit. Like, but they'll say, oh, well, taste it here. Well, you know, taste it. You can taste something like you taste mouthwash, right? Rinse it around, spit it out. Or you can taste something like you taste steak, a good steak. Don't spit that out. It's a waste of steak. So what does he mean here? Well, we already saw in chapter 2, Do you remember what he said this about Jesus? When he said that Jesus tasted death for us? We don't want to mess with that. We don't want to water that down. What does it mean? It means Jesus experienced death to its fullest for us. So he's saying, man, this person has tasted the heavenly gift. shared in the Holy Spirit or become a companion or a partaker with the Holy Spirit. So the, the word powers and is translated miracles. The word for power here in the original language is translated miracle in chapter 2, verse 4. I'm going to read that passage real quick because I think this whole section is really paralleling what he already said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when he said, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here it is. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So when he says here that you be, they become partakers of the Holy Spirit, at minimum he's saying they saw, they saw the miracles that accompanied the, the proclamation of the gospel. If you remember when we went through Acts and how every time the gospel went to a new place, it was accompanied by miracles, signs and wonders. And that was the work of the Holy Spirit through the folks that were preaching the gospel. He's saying, you, you saw that. At least he's saying probably also that they experienced conviction of sin. They were really broken. They were tore up over their sin. And that's something that the Holy Spirit does in a person. It's already convicts of sin. He said, and having tasted the goodness of the word of God. I believe he's talking about you know, the, the, the message of Jesus, what we're not supposed to drift away from, what we're supposed to make sure we're listening to the powers of the age to come. I think maybe he means here the idea that, because the, I think in the Old Testament this would be the, the Exodus generation who saw God's victories, destroying Egypt, demolishing the fake gods that they worshiped, all these little kingdoms that kind of stood in between where they had left from and where they were going to the promised land. They'd seen God's victory. They'd seen the promised land. And for the believer, that yeah, I think these folks have seen like the gospel go forth. I think they've seen the victory of what the gospel can do in people's lives. So, so for those people, if they then fall away, if they willfully and deli- deliberately commit apostasy, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. He says, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Remember Kahuna, Steve and little, Little's dad, he, he, so many of his sermons that are just burned in my memory, which I'm, I'm so thankful for. And I remember he would, he would say, let me tell you the saddest story in the Bible. Y'all remember? Let me, t- let me tell you the saddest story of the Bible. And he would then begin to talk about Judas. And he would talk about how Judas was so close to Jesus. He'd seen the miracles. He'd heard the teachings. Like, he was one of the folks that, I mean, he was taking up baskets full of fish when he had fed the multitude. Seen all of you. He was there when he walked on water, and he just never really believed. I think, man, Judas is a good picture here for us right now. And that is a sad, sad story. He was so close to the gospel. Experienced so much in a real way. I mean, Judas at one point went out with the other 12. Remember, they go out in pairs and they're, they're preaching the gospel and they're performing miracles. Judas was with them. But ultimately, he fell away. And what becomes clear is that he was never truly a believer. 
And the point that I think we're supposed to take from this description is not to like get spun out theologically, but is to go, there's a type of faith that starts out and is indistinguishable from saving faith to a point. That at the beginning, it looks the exact same. Think about Jesus' parable of the sower. Shows up in all the synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The parable of the sower. And there's all these different responses to the word of God. There's a seed that falls on the path and Satan immediately takes it away. That's somebody who hears the gospel and it's just gone. Like it doesn't penetrate his heart whatsoever. He rejects it outright. Satan snatches that up. He says, well, there's the, the one that falls among soil and it, it's rocky and so it, it grows up but it doesn't have any root in itself and when the sun comes out, it scorches it and it dies and Jesus later says, Man, that's like when, you face, when, when somebody receives the gospel initially with joy but as soon as trials come, it fades away, it falls. He says, and there's some that falls among thorns. And again, same thing, it immediately grows up and it looks like, it looks like the real deal. It's gonna bear fruit, maybe it'll make it. But it gets choked out and Jesus said, that's the person who, yeah, he receives the gospel, but then the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of riches, chokes him out and he doesn't remain. He says, and then, he says, and then there's seed that falls on good soil and it grows and then it produces a crop some 30, some 60, some 100. He says, that's, that's the person who, who gets it, who perseveres, who is fruitful in their knowledge of the gospel. So he's saying, in the case of those who at the beginning seem to receive the gospel just like any other believer, but whether through trials or testing or persecution or just sinful desire, they turn away. Some of y'all know my story. God saved me uh, right after high school. I'd grown up, I'd had, a, had faith. I was, grew up, my mom taught me the gospel. I went to a good church, I think, I was little heard the gospel. I remember, I mean, I loved it. I'd write songs, draw pictures. I was like three, four, five, six. I mean, I, I loved the Lord. I was baptized. And, you know, fast forward, I, mean, I rebelled hard, middle school, high school years. I, I just did what I wanted to do and, it, you know, didn't become like gang member or something. I was just a sinner just sin, they just did what sinners do. No, no desire for the things of the Lord. Just feeding my flesh, pursuing, pursuing the world. Man, and God intervened, saved me one night. Man, I was, I was not sober, and and I came home and I turned on television and this guy was just reading out of the Bible. And and God just saved me. He he just did, and I remember. I don't always share this part, but I, I called my buddy, my best friend in high school, is a guy named Matt, and uh, I didn't, I, I just disappeared for a while. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know what to do with being saved. 
I knew I wasn't going to go to the places that I had been going and do, I wasn't going to do the things that I'd been doing. And, and so I hadn't even talked to Matt. And that's pretty unusual because we, we hung out a lot. And, and so I called him. And, he, and I was like, man, I, I need to tell you some stuff. And he's like, yeah, I got to talk to you. Can I come over? And I was like, yeah, man, come, come on over. And shows up and walks in. Uh, and I go to tell him how God had saved me. And he's telling me how God saved him. And not only that, but like the same TV program. Like totally separate, separate places. He had turned on his television. Dude's reading out of the Bible. And I'm like, was he old with really big ears? And he's like, yes. And we just, I remember, <laughs> uh, we're, we're both like 19, 18, 19 years old. And we're just like weeping because like, can you believe this? And, and <laughs> not going to do it. I'll do it. <laughs> we, we started going to this church, man, it was a great church, First Baptist Woodstock, a lot of y'all know, and, and just we were going there together and hearing the word and started going to Sunday school together. And we'd go out and share the gospel. We, I remember we were sharing the gospel with some dude at Subway who thought we were crazy, but we didn't care. We were like, you got to know this. And, and then we I don't know, I don't know how long, I don't know how long, but one Sunday he didn't come, and call him, nobody answer, and call him, call him, call him, it was more like this, and call him, and I just remember just having this sick feel in my stomach, and so I, I drove over, <laughs> drove over to, you know, where we used to hang out and my other buddy's house. We'd hang out in his garage and sure enough, his truck was out front and I just walked in and it was like all my buddies like move the cloud of smoke and I was like, man, what are you doing? <laughs> and, he, and he was like, oh, let's talk later. And so <clears throat> we end up, he, he went to church with me that Sunday and we walked out in the parking lot and after church and he, he was like, man, I just don't believe. <laughs> now, you know, for me, I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. Like, <laughs> how, how can you have seen, how can you s have seen what we've seen None of you are going to tell a joke. Come on. Help me out. How can you have seen what we've seen, experienced what we've experienced? Like, <laughs> and we stood there, and he, he just starts, I mean, there's no other way to say it. He just starts mocking He starts mocking God. And, you know, I didn't know what to do with that. Uh, I was just like, man, like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. And I, and I just, 
So however we ended that conversation, I remember he was standing in the parking lot. He was just like, if you're real, show yourself to me. He's like, see, see, Lonnie strike me dead. If he's real, and he was just so belligerent about it. And, and I eventually went away to Liberty, and I'd come back home and try to get up with him, and he would just, he'd just mock me. He'd be like, hey, uh, I'm Muslim now. And I'd be like, what? And he's like, ah, just messing with you. And he was just so cold and hard, and, and I, didn't, I didn't know what to do with that, you know? And because we'd have the exact same experience. And then, you know, I, I read this and I think, man, that's him. That's him. Because this isn't just somebody who's like sinned a lot. And that's what typically happens is somebody wants to jump into this passage and like, have I committed apostasy? And they'll they'll put themselves through unnecessary distress because they're like, yeah, we've all sinned. They think, man, have I passed the point of no return? Do you see what this person does? This isn't just somebody who just, you know, keeps messing up in their thought life or messed up on their taxes, intentionally or not. Like, do you see what this person does? Look at this. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This isn't just somebody who falls into sin. This is somebody who, yeah, they started out like a Christian, indistinguishable, and then they begin to drift. Can we all drift? Absolutely. And then they were deceived by sin. Can that happen to us? Yeah, to a degree. But this is somebody who embraces it whether through the persecution or the desire to sin, and they end up in a place where they would say that Jesus is not Lord, that Jesus' death on the cross was a joke. In fact, he deserved it. They put themselves with those who at one time were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then fast forward for them, and they're shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas, kill him. He's a liar, or he's crazy, but he is not the son of God. He's not the savior of the world. And when they saw him hanging on the cross, they thought this is just another Roman crucifixion. I remember talking to one young man who's a student that came through the camp, and he was so convinced he had committed apostasy. And I said, listen to me. Do you, what, what do you believe about Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Unless you're willing to say this, you have not committed apostasy. Do you hear me? Like, yeah, we are going to sin. You are going to fall. But you are not, if you're a Christian, you are not going to fall away. Because you pick yourself back up? No, because he picks you back up. But this person, 
It's impossible. Why? Why is it impossible for them to be renewed to repentance? Because you cannot repent while at the same time rejecting Jesus. There is salvation in no other name. And if you reject the name of Jesus, you can't be saved. And this is another point of contention between scholars and pastors, and I've heard every opinion here. People who say, well, impossible means, yeah, it's impossible, there's no hope, that person is destined to hell, there's nothing that can be done for them by anyone, anywhere, anyhow. And there's other people who say, well, it's kind of like impossible in the sense of like, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, things that are impossible with God, or things that are impossible for man are possible for God. And, and here's where I land on this, and maybe this will make sense. Because maybe you know people like Matt. And I think, man, Matt committed apostasy. I've never met anybody in, in life that better fits this passage. But here's where I hold out hope. Yeah, absolutely it's impossible for Matt to save himself. And as long as he rejects Jesus, it's impossible for him to repent. But, if you're, if you're visiting with us, I'm not, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm trying not to talk through the weird bubble in my throat. Because no, no, nobody likes that. It's not comfortable for anybody. But, doesn't mean that God couldn't break them. That the power of the gospel couldn't overwhelm their unbelief. Because I think this, what if Matt showed up? What if he's like, dude, I randomly heard this sermon you did at some church called Red Oak and you're talking about me, what the heck, dude? And, but, but God convicted me. Like, if he showed up and he's like, I repent, would I say, sorry man, Romans 6, it's impossible. Better luck nef- next life. No, man, I would celebrate, right? I'd welcome him in. Not because of what I believe is impossible in the heart of man, but because of what I believe is possible in the heart of God. He gives that illustration. Yeah, doesn't bear fruit, thorns and thistles. I encourage you to go read uh, small group leaders, man, for your, for your time this week. Go read Matthew 25, 31 through 46. What Jesus says about who enters the kingdom. Verse nine again. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. You get it? And the case of those... But now he's coming back and he says, we believe things better, beloved. You, the object of God's steadfast, unchanging love. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. What belongs to salvation? Eternal life. Heaven. Being purified from your sin. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work 
and the love you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. What's he saying? Why is he confident? He's like, man, God loves you. Why do I believe that? Because you love God and you love his church. And in the face of persecution, you're willing to serve the church. You've remained faithful. Now let's continue to pursue faithfulness to the end. Let's strive because Jesus has loved us with this type of love. Pray with me. Lord, love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church tonight. So patient and long-suffering, the long word of exhortation. I pray that if there's people here that have, that are, see themselves drifting, see themselves hardening their heart, see themselves walking away from you, that in your kindness you'd lead them to repentance. And I pray for us, Lord, that we, we never would, that we'd remain faithful, and that we'd bear fruit a hundredfold for your glory. We love you. We need you in Christ's name. Amen.